We are going to be in Psalm chapter 16, which is a bit of a break from our uh, sermon series. We've been uh, here at Bayless. We've been back in the gospel according to Mark, but we've decided today on this special Sunday to go to the book of Psalms for uh, a couple different reasons. One, if you are from the journey, uh, you have been in the Psalms for the past month in Journey July, uh, the famous or infamous German Journey July. And, uh, but also here at Bayless, for the past several years, we have also been in the book of Psalms, one psalm after another, preaching through the entire book of Psalms was our intent and hope, and uh, we hold this book very dearly too. So today, I, it's almost I can't help myself, but in bringing these, in bringing our congregations together, but to go to a songbook which has united God's people for thousands of years. This book, the book of Psalms, few other books. Uh, are quoted, quoted by the Bible, uh, in the Bible, then the book of Psalms. And in fact, it is quoted most often by Jesus. And Jesus saw this book as pointing directly to him. So in listening in on the Psalms and listening in on those who hoped in God in times of, well, plenty and in lack, we not only gain understanding what it is to follow God in very similar times, but we gain understanding of what Christ has accomplished for us. Before we get started, I tell you what, it is really sweet, isn't it, to be here together today? If you didn't show up early, you uh, probably have now motive to show up early because you probably had to park on the back side of the building. Um, but it's really good for us to see this place full, this parking lot full as well, um, especially to gather together for such sweet a purpose as we are doing today, which is to worship God. And uh, we um, are going to be looking at one theme in the the Psalter, the Psalms, in Psalm 16, where it shows up, and that is, the Lord is my portion. It's one of my favorite images in the Bible, but how many of you, if I asked you, could say what that means? I mean, portion of what exactly? I mean, it reminds me of uh, the Sandlot, when, uh, when Ham asks Smalls, you want a s'more? Some, some more of what? How can I have some more if I hadn't? had any yet, right? So what portion of what exactly, right? So that, we'll get to what that means in just a second, but it gets at, this psalm actually gets at a need many of us feel, some very, well, very deep discontentment. I don't know if you experience, but if you're like me, have you ever w wished your life was different than it is? Do you wish that this morning? Do you wish you had a bit more money than you do right now to to be as well-liked as he is, to be as respected as she is, to have a job that just didn't make you so insane, maybe to have a smaller waistline, maybe more serious than that even. You, you, your days may be full of chronic pain or more loneliness than you feel that you can handle. Have you ever wished your life could be different than it is? Have you ever thought to yourself, God owes me more than this? It's fascinating. The Bible assumes that real contentment is not only possible, but is the logical follow-through of the Christian hope. And we find it in passages just like this. What is the fuel of deep contentment when all we know is discontentment? Is it that circumstances are just so good or that we've just simply ignored them? Hardly, actually. This fuel for contentment actually allows you to look very honestly at your life, to size it up more realistically than anyone else would. 
even in lack and uncertainty, and still grip on to contentment with two hands. What is the fuel of deep contentment? It is the Lord himself. But obviously we need to say more than that, and we are going to. We're going to look at three reasons, three truths, in fact, in this passage very briefly, that, give, that show us why the Lord is our source of contentment, starting with the first. The Lord is my good. Now, I want to get real with you for a second. Uh, I, uh, let me ask those of you who are married or those who, who are in a relationship right now or who have been in a long-term friendship with somebody, what is the thing that is most likely to trigger a fight between you? Okay, don't shout it out, please. And don't nudge the person who is next to you. If you're anything like me, it's money. Maybe I'm the only one here in the room. But there's nothing that like, <laughs> thank you for the honesty. There's, a, there's few things that, that surface rising tension and fear, anger towards the person across the table from me than revisiting the budget. What is it about that? Friends, is it, I, I think it's because you know, our, there's few things like money that are as effective in surfacing both our fears and our selfish pride. It surfaces, more importantly, where we believe our happiness lies and what stands in its way. Maybe I'm the only one who struggles with this, or maybe it is like Paul warned that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It surfaces, again, that deep discontentment, the desire for my life to be more than it is right now. And that being said, is anyone else compelled by this psalm in verse 2? Maybe even a even skeptical that it's possible to say words like this and mean them. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. No good. That's a bit extreme to say, isn't it? I mean, is David moaning about his life? I have, I have no good. I mean, apart from you, I guess. I think we know that that's not what David means. David isn't ungrateful for what he has. As king, that would be a lot. And he certainly isn't indifferent to all the Lord has given. What is he saying? He's probably saying, and I think the psalm leads us to say, that he's saying something similar to Philippians chapter 3. Hey, buddy. As Paul, who is not speaking as a king, but is speaking as someone who is under house arrest, contemplating his own death, Paul speaking as one who who could and literally had lost everything in a very different position than David, saying in Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Kiddos, the word for rubbish there is poop. Okay, so that's the Bible does say that. It's saying the best things are, even the best things we could ask for, are worth comparing to garbage in, in comparison to Christ. But the word, I want you to notice a different word here, count. Paul is using a word that speaks of something intentional, something deliberate, a choice of thought. He purposefully regarded everything as garbage when compared to Christ. 
Think of it this way. My son loves cars a lot. You take him anywhere, and so long as he has some cars along, he is a happy camper. And he always has loved his cars, particularly monster trucks. He would sit for hours on end playing with them. But just a few years ago, I took him right before uh, uh, 2020 uh, to our very first monster truck rally. And let me tell you, it was a bit of a gamble. I've never done something like that with my son. I was hoping the entire way that it wouldn't be a flop. And it was, after all, it was noisy. And it brings together uh, a, a very interesting crowd, to say the least. But he was mesmerized with the first roar of an engine. He was focused. Nothing could distract him from it. I can hardly think of a time when my son was not, was not more excited. I'm pretty sure he wants to drive a monster truck someday. Here's hoping those passions change. But the, nonetheless, he, on the way back, in the car, you know what he wasn't talking about? The cars he left at home. He had seen the real thing. It's a bit like what we're talking about here, and it shows up in verse 5 as well. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The Lord is my chosen portion. Again, portion of what exactly? Well, it seems, based on the context, that there is at least two things that Paul has in mind. We're going to look at the first now, and you're going to have to wait to the second till the end. The first here refers to a chosen portion of a meal, or a feast, or a sacrifice. The best portion of a cut of meat. Uh, a flank steak, or a New York strip, or for the you vegans out there, uh, well-seasoned asparagus or soy bacon. I'm not sure what, you don't have to tell me what's really good. Okay, but this is the, cho the chosen portion of the cut of meat, okay? The, the Lord is the chosen portion. In other words, if offered the world, David says, you are the thing I would choose. In other words, God gives many gifts throughout life. After all, he did not need to give us fall colors, or a cool Sunday, or afternoon naps, amen, or mountains, or BLTs. But he did. He did not need to give uh, you a safe home. He did not need to give you a full stomach or the strength to rise from your bed this morning. And we're reminded many do not have that. But he did. He gives and loves to give good gifts. And yet, what we read in the scriptures is none of these are the point. Christians are free to enjoy good gifts knowing that they are a neon sign pointing to one who is better. He is the treasure to which all other treasures point, the one that really satisfies and strengthens. This is what Jesus gets at when he calls himself the bread of life and the water of life. What is he saying? As he says in John 6, verse 35, Whoever comes to me, Jesus speaking, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, the Lord is our portion. Jesus is what is most satisfying, sustaining, and valuable. Whatever you have your heart set on in this life, trust me, Jesus is better. This means that a Christian, again, can enjoy God's good gifts, perhaps more so than anyone else, but they do so without being consumed by them. They are able to recover when they are robbed of them. 
A Christian can praise God for good gifts without living for them or collapsing when they are taken away. Whether we have more than we know what to do with or our lot seems small, we can call it pleasant because we have him. And because we have him, we have all things. The Lord is my good, but the the psalm also encourages us, reminds us that the Lord is more good. The Lord is my good. The Lord is more good. Now, some of you are saying, uh, I think the word you're looking for is better. Just stick with it. It fits better, all right? So the Lord is better, yes. But the Lord is more good. Trust me, this is going to be important. Again, some are thinking to ourselves, even in all this, yeah, Evan, okay, yeah, I want to believe that the Lord is my good. That's great and all, but life isn't so good to me. In fact, it can be pretty brutal sometimes. Are you, are you saying I should just plaster a smile on my face and pretend like I'm really doing fine? Some of you feel that pressure even coming here this morning. Should I just focus on the best and ignore the rest? Just rejoice in the Lord? Of course, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't rejoice in the Lord, but friends, it should not be fake and false. It's important to know that David can be just as honest in the rest of the Psalms. If you don't believe me, keep reading. Just as honest about his fears, about his anger, even his own doubts as he is about his joy. He doesn't pretend life is always sunshine and butterflies. And even in the Psalm, I think we can see hints of it. Reasons why David himself has to call God's faithfulness to mind, God's goodness to mind. And look at verse 4. In verse 4, David speaks of running after other gods, taking the names of other gods on our lips. He is speaking of compromise, of believing that our joy would not be found in God, but be better found around God. By putting something in God's place, making something else ultimate in my life, and we cannot help but doing so. Little g gods that don't just come in the form of statues of gold and stone, but little g gods in the form of reputation and comfort and control and success and family and stability and pleasure. Whether we have it or we want it, we are constantly tempted to take something God has provided and cherish it over God himself. You could say we cherish the gifts of God's hand more than the gifts of his face. Especially in times of great stress and loss. Especially when we're not all that sure that God has been good to us. We have to assume that David felt this temptation himself to live only for the joys that come from God's hands. After all, they are easy, they are quick, often powerful, and they offer immediate pleasure and immediate security. It's why David slept with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. It turns out that every time we sin too, that is exactly what we do. We settle for a lesser joy disbelieving that greater joys are really found in Jesus. As C.S. Lewis put it in a very famous quote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So what enabled David then to 
refuse temptation, as we find in verse 4, to refuse what these gods had offered. Well, looking at that verse, it was knowing, probably from experience, that that path, the wide and easy way that came from Matthew, we've already read from, that that path of compromise eventually only leads one place, and it leads to sorrow. Maybe not immediately, but it gets there in the end. But even more importantly, because as verse 8 puts it, he has set the Lord before him. Hear the sense of purpose that Paul had. When he considers the surpassing wealth of Christ, he sets the Lord before him. Even in the dead of night, he says, he thoughtfully, deliberately meditated, not just on how the Lord had been good to him in the past, but on the goodness of the Lord right now. He set his mind on the constant, unwavering presence of the Lord himself and the joy that is always to be found there. The kind of joy Jesus promised in John 15 when he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Friends, have you thought about that? When Jesus calls you to lay down your life and follow him, to take up your cross and follow him, which is the call on every disciple. He says that is the path to greater life, to greater joy. What makes it, makes you willing to set it all aside, to use the language of some of my favorite parables from Jesus. It is like a merchant discovering a pearl of great price that would require him to sell all things, but of course he would, because he has found in that pearl more than he had already. Or a man who finds treasure buried in a field and sells all that he has to buy that field because he knows that treasure there is worth more than he had already. When we come to God, we come to one who is offering us more than we could ever have any other place. Full joy, lasting joy, better joy, the kind of joy you have been made for and can find nowhere else much as we try to seek it out. Now, does that mean that our experience of God's presence, let alone joy, is always going to be constant? No. In some sense... You will spend your life waiting for that kind of joy. Waiting to taste it. Feeling like it is just beyond your grasp. C.S. Lewis speaks of this in the longing for joy. A joy that is yet to be satisfied. And we will not taste in full till we see Christ face to face. But the more you set Jesus before you, more you set the Lord before you as David did, reading his word, meditating on the assurances it makes, praising God for what you find there, and, did you notice here, gathering with others who believe it, the holy ones, it says, the saints, those who cherish this with you. We can remind you of it on a hard day. The more joy is what you will find, a joy that is sweeter, better, more than the siren song of other gods. I'll give you a practical example of this as a pastor i have often counseled people who are stuck in powerful temptation maybe that describes you the kind you you wish you couldn't keep you wouldn't go so easily down that path that well-worn rut it just seems immediate unconscious you can't stop thinking about it it turns over and over in your mind you know what i have found the only thing that works to break the back of that temptation to loosen its grip upon their own hearts It is not telling them, just stop thinking about it. Rightly so, they would say say back, I I can't 
In fact, the more I try, the worse it gets. Have you ever experienced like that? I don't need a show of hands. The, it, instead, what breaks the grip of temptation, it is finding, in place of that desire, a stronger desire for something else, a greater desire, a desire for something that is more good than what the temptation itself offers. We get this every time that you go on a diet or you start working out. As much as you long for 12 donuts, you long for health more. Okay? You may not want to wake up in time for class, but you also want to pass the class. Okay? You may not want to show up for that boss again, but you really need that paycheck. We understand that there are certain desires that we squash and deny and refuse because we want something more. Instead of trying to search out and destroy the desire itself, it must be expelled, it must be dislodged, it must be removed by something stronger. Thomas Chalmers, the Scottish minister, writes a long essay I can send you, but the title of it is worth the price of it, which is free, I guess. But nonetheless, it is the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Discovering something greater, a desire for something more is what, what, what expels what is old. How can you refuse a lesser desire by experiencing a greater one? And the only one that can break the reigning grip of sin upon the heart is a desire for the Lord himself. As Jesus said, those blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Only knowing that the Lord is your good, and even now he is more good than what you desire, can do so. But finally, the Lord will be good to me forever. I heard this illustration recently from another pastor, but it's just so helpful, and I could relate to it as a father. But I'm, I've been teaching my kids how to ride their bikes, and I want you to imagine with me, again, trying to teach my daughter to ride her bike. And picture her on her bike. I've pushed her off, and she's pedaling, pedaling, pedaling as fast as she can. In fact, she's so focused on the pedaling, on the activity of it. Where is her head? Where are her eyes? Down. Now, if you are a parent or if you've ever ridden a bike, you know, is that where you want your eyes to be? No, because what happens when you focus on the activity, you veer and crash. And so calling out from behind her, imagine me, what would I say? No, 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 sweetheart, look, don't look down, look, look forward, look ahead. Friends, that's what a Christian does. We are future-focused people. As, now Jason, you're going to have to help me, because you know this pastor, John Onwick, John O. John O, we're going to say it, John O. I don't remember, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. The pastor who I heard this illustration from he says, God's people are future-oriented, future-focused people. It is only as we look to the future through the lens of God's presence that we are driven to hope. That is the real momentum of this psalm. Did you notice it? That the psalm touches very lightly on what David's actually experiencing and going through, on his present circumstances. Instead, the reason that David is so confident is because he knows that the Lord holds his lot, that the Lord has an inheritance for him that is beautiful, that the Lord's path is the path of life. He has confidence on, uh, about this path because of where it leads, not where he presently finds himself. 
In fact, you can see it in the other image, as I promised, that stands behind the Lord is my portion. And it's much clearer and more common in the scriptures, and it has to do with ancient real estate. Exciting, right? But it was necessary. It was life for the, for the ancient Israelites, especially when the promised land was divided up. Nearly every tribe and family received land, and in ancient terms, that meant income and security. But it also meant a future future for not just you, but your kids and your grandkids, a future that, that was stable and bright, your lot, your portion, it was your hope of what was waiting for you down the road. But I say nearly every tribe because one tribe was left out of the arrangements, the tribe of Levi, the tribe responsible for the priesthood. Why? Well, as God puts it to Aaron in Numbers 18, you shall have no inheritance in their land, Neither shall you have any portion among them. Why, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Imagine yourself as a Levite. Uh, Thanks, God. The Lord understands in seeing the living metaphor of Levi, Israel is seeing where all of their good is found. He warns them in coming to the land that they would forget the one who had given them the gifts in the first place because they would so love the gifts from his hand. God isn't just saying to the Levites, your future is in my hands, although that's certainly true. He is saying, I am your future. I am the hope down the road. Jesus himself is the hope of heaven. And Peter picks this up in his first letter to a church that isn't so sure that the future will be bright and good, who are, who are already experiencing a lot of cost for following Christ, and they're not so sure that All that they have lost for the name of Christ is worth it. And as soon as the starting gun sounds in his book, he starts singing of what he calls a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a, not just hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He even goes on to call this inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading for you, kept guarded by God himself. Like the psalm, that may sound very wonderful, but just immaterial for you. That seems like something to worry about tomorrow. What good does that do me now? Something may be waiting for you on the horizon, but you may doubt, really, is is that really hope? Is that really the joy I've spent my life waiting for? It's easier to settle for something small now. Is it really a kind of joy which is bigger than my sorrows and uncertainties? A kind of joy which, as Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings puts it, it makes everything sad seem untrue. Is is there really joy worth dying for there? I want you to notice that Peter intends to anchor this hope in something concrete. He does not just say you have a living hope, full stop. What does he say? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, your hope is living as living as Jesus is. In fact, in his sermon at Pentecost, Peter quotes this very psalm, verses 9 through 11, verses which seem to point to a hope beyond the grave, point even to a resurrection. And Peter links these promises, their assurances, to Jesus, who was not not abandoned to death, whose flesh was saved from corruption. Christ, the same Jesus, who was cut off from his joy 
The joy that was set before him as he endured the cross, separated from the very presence of the one David hopes in. The same Jesus who did so to bear the sorrows of all those who have run after other gods like us. The same Jesus who did not drink the cup of joy, but the cup of wrath. That Jesus has been vindicated. That Jesus has been raised, and that Jesus is coming again. He is our hope down the road. The Holy One of God is not only the source and point of your joy, he is the assurance that your joy waits even on the other side of death. If our hope is in this life only, as Paul puts it, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is that stark. If there is no joy beyond to, uh, the, the, on, beyond the horizon, friends, you are wasting your life as a Christian, what Paul says. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then Jesus is the only the first of those who, have, who will walk away from death into joy, endless joy, infinite joy. You can bank your eternity on it. You have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christians are a future-focused people. There is no such thing as being too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. If you look to the future through the lens of God's goodness and the gospel itself, your hope is alive. Friends, if this is not you, if you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, do you really want to ground your hope somewhere else in something as vapid as money? In your career? In your health or your family? Do you really want to ground your hope in something that has an expiration date? Hope instead in Jesus. Hope in his life, death, and resurrection, recognizing you were one of those who took the names of other gods, the one he, ones he died for. Hope in his death on your behalf and in a resurrection to come that you will share in undeserved. Hope in Jesus instead, who offers you a living hope, as living as he is. And Christians, he is the reason you can be content today. He is the reason you can refuse temptation. And he is and will be our portion forever. Father, we come to you as the one who is and will be our portion, and we will see it face to face soon. Even now, come, Lord Jesus, and help us to hold fast until we see your face. You are the hope of heaven. Lord, would that hope set us alive now, holding everything we have loosely, being radically generous and grateful, persisting and even when, when following Jesus comes with great cost, knowing that there's nothing that can be robbed from us that is more precious than him. And Lord, we pray all these things in light of the matchless name of Jesus Christ.